You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. Thank you, Rob. And good afternoon, church. You may be seated. I do look forward to when we have church in the morning at the park. I kind of have a debate in my head of whether or not we're going to still say good afternoon when it's morning. We'll see when the time comes. I'm looking at you, Ryan. (laughs) So I've had a hard time writing this sermon. And the reason for this is that in this particular text, it touches on a topic that I feel woefully unprepared for. It is a topic that is, I feel like, a hot-button issue in our time in America. And as Ryan has been singing about, it is about reconciliation. Reconciliation has become a very politically charged word. I've not been able to go to any news outlet without hearing about reconciliation in America. I've heard one side arguing that there is a great need for reconciliation. I've heard the other side argue that the focus on race is what's causing division in the first place. And I'm not convinced that either side is really capable of reconciling with each other. These things and this topic has gotten me thinking over the past few weeks about all the divisions that America has had throughout its history. I think that anyone can recognize that there has always been some sort of division. We have a history of it. There has been a division over very tangible examples or situations, such as slavery, which is division and creating two different classes of people. Then there was, of course, Jim Crow, which did the same. But there's other examples. There's been division over immigration. This has been true in our modern culture when it comes to Muslim immigration, but it was true in the beginning of America over poor Irish Catholic immigrants. There is a division on even how we interpret these historical facts and how they affect our current time. On top of this, there are political divisions, religious divisions, ideological divisions. I think it's obvious that reconciliation is something that is needed now more than ever. But the question is, how can it be accomplished? As Christians, as the church, we have one place to turn to in answering this question. We must always turn to the Bible. I truly believe that the Bible is relevant on any topic. Sometimes it might not speak directly to that topic, but it still lays groundwork for interpreting it. But on the topic of reconciliation, Ephesians 2, I think, speaks directly to the issue. And although I may feel inadequate to speak on the issue of unity or reconciliation, the Bible is not inadequate. And if Ephesians 2 speaks on it, and I believe it does, then so will I. Now, when I say that Ephesians 2 speaks on reconciliation, I'm not just referring to our text today, verses 13 through 22, but I'm thinking of the whole chapter. In verses 1 to 10, we see the first main area of reconciliation. Paul tells us how we were first reconciled to God. We were previously enemies to God. We walked in the passions of our flesh. We were by nature children of wrath. And this is terrible news. In verse 4, though, we come to my favorite two words in all the scriptures. But God. 
When I see these words, I know that the bad news has come to an end. But God, in love, made us alive with Christ. God first reconciled us to himself. And as we move on to our previous sermon, Paul shifts the focus in verse 11 from our unity with Christ back into more bad news. This bad news, as Sean stated, was that before we were Christians, there was a religious and spiritual deficit beyond the deficit that we created with our own sin. Sean spoke on how circumcision set Israel apart from the Gentiles because it was the Israelites, not the Jews, or the Israelites, the Jews, who were a part of God's covenant. The Gentiles were alienated from God's family. They were not citizens of God's kingdom. Before, in Ephesians 2, what Paul was highlighting was the division that man had with God himself by being children of wrath. Here, Paul's hiding the division that existed between the Jews, who were the people of God, and the Gentiles, who were outside the commonwealth. Once again, Paul gives us the bad news before the good. And there's one thing that I would like to actually add uh, when it comes to verses 11 and 12. I've mentioned the many divisions that we see in America, but here we see the division between the Jews and the Gentiles. I think there's a very important difference between these two divisions that we must recognize. See, I agree with pastor and theologian Vodi Bakum that the division and distinctions in America, such as race, are essentially arbitrary. They're not real. What he means by this is that when we think of something like race, there's ultimately only one race, the human race, because we are all descendants of Adam and Eve. We all have the same parents. Genetically, we are almost identical. Distinctions that exist between people based off of the melanin in their skin is ultimately made by us. The distinction and the division between Jews and Gentile, by contrast, is not only real, but they are God-ordained. God is the one that chose the Israelites. He is the one who separated them from the rest of the nations. He is the one who gave them circumcision to physically mark them as different from the world. And this was done for a time. And now in Christ, God is bringing the Gentiles into his covenant and reconciling that true division. And if he can uh, reconcile people who have a true and God-ordained division, he can certainly do so with our own. So, We then come to our text for the day. We will see how God has reconciled the Jews and the Gentiles together. And it's my hope that we will see how these truths are our own foundation for unity within the church. So first we read, starting in verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. In verse 13, we see the cornerstone of our unity. The blood of Christ is the means by which we have been brought near to God. We were far off like foreigners in another land, but by the blood of Christ, as we have seen throughout Ephesians, we have been brought near and adopted into God's family. 
But as we see at the end of verse 14, there was hostility that needed to be overcome for this unity to take place. That raises the question, what is the hostility? Some of the hostility I've already mentioned before, it's in circumcision and the Jews being separated from all other people. It was a covenant mark made between Abraham and God. But now with the advent of Christ, those who were outside the covenant are being brought near. We should not be surprised that there was hostility. And I wanted to highlight this hostility a little more and really show the differences between the two people. Because the sentiments against the Gentiles run a lot deeper. It was not just circumcision that separated the Jews from the Gentiles. It was the whole law. There are over 600 laws in the Old Testament, and the Jews were to keep all of them to be holy and considered clean. Over many years, hatred against the Gentiles began to develop. Israelites, in their pride over their religious and cultural heritage, began to call Gentiles not only unclean, but according to one commentator, dogs. The theologian that I read mentioned that one of the daily prayers that the Jews developed by their tradition was to pray to God in thankfulness that I am not a Gentile. We see that in the New Testament as well. As Jesus gives a parable about a man praying, oh, thank you, I am not like that tax collector. This is that dividing wall of hostility. And not only was the wall of hostility developed through the Jews' attitude to the Gentiles, but there was actually a, a literal component. This division had a physical manifestation, which was a wall created in the temple to separate the court of the Gentiles filled with converts from the temple proper. It'd be like if we had a guest come to our church who was not a Christian from Iowa, and we did not let them come into the sanctuary. It would be like we didn't even let them come into the foyer where our communion is. Maybe we would allow them to stand and overhear us between the two double doors that separates the outside and the inside. So when we read about the hostility that had to be overcome, I want us to see that this hostility runs deep. To bring these two parties together, the hatred for one another had to be addressed. Christ himself, as we see in verse 14, had to become their peace. How does he do this? First, he becomes a point of connection between the two hostile parties. See, I see it like as if two people had a common friend that brings them together as like a mediator. Maybe you and I have some sort of issue with one another. So we come together, but we have Pastor Sean as our common point of contact. And he would help bring the peace between us. So Christ has already reconciled the Jews and Gentiles to God. And then on that common ground of Christ, they can start to come together in peace. Christ, however, does even more than just bring the Jews and Gentiles to the table. We read that he makes them one with one another. And this raises even more questions. How does Christ make two separate peoples one? We go on to read that Christ breaks down the dividing wall of hostility in verse 15 by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace. We see that one work of Christ that he had to accomplish to make these two parties was to abolish the law and commandments. The Jews were proud to have the law and to keep it, 
and for good reason. As Paul says in Romans 3, this privilege had great value as they were entrusted with the oracles of God. However, the ceremonies, the sacrifices, the categories of clean and unclean, they created a barrier between the Jews and the Gentiles. This division had to be abolished and replaced with fellowship. God could not, however, simply cease the requirements of the law that he had created. It is not possible for God in the Old Testament to require circumcision and animal sacrifice, and in the New Testament to not require those things on a mere whim. This may raise an objection that God is God. He can do whatever he wants. However, the scriptures are very clear that God cannot lie and he cannot contradict himself. God ordained that in order to be righteous, the holy and righteous and holy, the law had to be fulfilled in every way. And we know that we are unable to fulfill those requirements. But Christ can. See, in Reformed circles, we talk often about how Christ lived a perfect life on our behalf so that his righteousness could become our righteousness. But here, I think we see that he has done even more and accomplished more with his perfect life. Not only did he live righteously so that the righteousness could be imputed to us, but he did so so that the requirements of the law were no longer a barrier. By his life and death, Jesus has fulfilled all the ceremonial laws set by God once and for all. Gentiles do not need to hold to the law for salvation, and neither do the Jews. It is instead by faith that both Jews and Gentiles come to salvation. There is no place for pride. There is no place for Jews to call Gentiles dogs. And Paul makes this point even clearer in verse 16. Since the law is no longer a barrier and a requirement for salvation, Jesus then reconciles the Jews and Gentiles together to God through the cross. And I was trying to think of an illustration that can help us understand the point that I'm making. And I think I'm going to actually borrow one that I was given during marriage counseling. See, in this case, God is like a point on a triangle. The Jews and Gentiles and ourselves are at different points along the triangle. And if we want to become closer to one another, we don't try to meet in the middle. Instead, we each try to get closer to God, closer to that single point. Because when we reach that point, we become one with God and each other. I think that's what Paul is trying to get at. The Jews and Gentiles, respectively us, cannot have hostility to one another when we are all brought into reconciliation with God. Because we are reconciled with God, we become one family. So then there's two ways that Christ has accomplished reconciliation. First, he takes down the wall between the two parties, the sacrifices, circumcision, the law. It's gone. And then he brings those two parties to faith in God. This is further emphasized in verse 17 and 18, where Paul says, And he came and preached peace to you who are far off, and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Paul's almost just repeating himself here, just to hammer home his points. Christ has come 
both for those near and those far off, preaching peace. He's come to you and to me, and he's come to our brothers and sisters overseas. And by him, we have access by the Holy Spirit to the Father. Before, only the Jews and only really the high priest had direct access to God through the Holy of Holies. But now you and I and anyone in Christ have direct access to the Father. As we are the one people of God now, made holy by the blood of Christ. The fact that we are now one together in Christ is made three times. He made us both one in verse 14, created himself one new man in verse 15, reconciled us both to God in one body in verse 16. You don't need to take a class on hermeneutics to realize that Paul is making a point here. Paul does not stop there, though. In order to give us a better picture of what it means to be one together, Paul goes on to give us illustrations of our new status as a body. The first illustration of Paul is built on what he said earlier in verse 12 about being alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise. This status gets completely reversed in verse 19, as Paul says, so you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Paul is now speaking exclusively to those Gentile Ephesians. They were aliens. Now they are citizens. And again, unless you were previously a religious Jew yourself, you were aliens, but now you are citizens. We need to realize how huge this is. There are many promises made to the commonwealth of Israel in the Old Testament, and now we're part of the commonwealth. And so those promises made to Israel are not just for them, but for the whole church and for us. This is why we can read our Old Testament and apply promises made by God to our own lives. Beyond that, every Christian now shares a common citizenship. It does not matter if you are American, English, Ugandan, Chinese, Japanese, Kenyan, Iranian, or a member of any other country. When you become a Christian, you become a citizen of God's kingdom first. I'm reminded of a story of the, uh, told by the late R.C. Sproul. Uh, he told this in one of his foundation classes, and it was on the topic of reconciliation and God's kingdom. It has been a little while since I've heard this story, so I do apologize for leaving out some details, but I wanted to share it with you because I still think it's powerful. See, when Sproul was younger, he was traveling overseas on sort of like a preaching tour. Uh, there was a point in his trip where he had to cross the border, though, from one country to another. And at the crossing, there was a checkpoint. And at the checkpoint, Sproul and those traveling with him all took out their passports to show that they were U.S. citizens and that they were cleared for travel. The officer running the checkpoint, though, singled out Sproul and pulled him aside. And he took Sproul's passport and he looked at it. And after examining it for a good bit, he looked back at Sproul and told him that he was not an American. And he took... And Sproul was just flabbergasted that the officer did not believe his passport. He was fearful that he was going to be detained. But then the officer pointed to the Bible that Sproul had been carrying, and he did turn to Ephesians 2 and said, you are not an American, you are a Christian. After that, they prayed together and Sproul went on his way. That officer, a member of another country, recognized that he and Sproul were fellow citizens. 
their nationality was at best secondary to the fact that they were Christian. This is the type of unity and oneness that has been accomplished by the cross and that we as a church must live out. This is the source and the basis of reconciliation. If we truly grasp the oneness of the church, our common salvation, our God, and our true citizenship, we will not have an excuse to divide ourselves. And this oneness is something that I think of, this oneness is something I think that we've all actually have experienced in some way. Christians call each other brothers and sisters for a reason. The oneness we have in Christ should be like a family. And in some cases, our relationship with fellow Christians can run deeper than the ones that we have with blood relatives. When I think of this sort of Christian unity, I almost always think about my friend Brooks, who you all know. Brooks and I had lived together for two years. We have attended the same school for five years. We have shared meals, we have laughed together, and uh, we've, we've had what I'm going to call as heated discussions on many different topics. And despite being put off by his man bun freshman year, because of Christ, because of our love of, for God, I can honestly say that I am closer to Brooks than many of my family members, despite any differences that we might have, because we are first and foremost Christians. Paul goes on to give us one more illustration before I conclude. He writes, after declaring us members of God's household, that we are, verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is perhaps my favorite picture that Paul gives of our unity, it is the picture of a temple made for God. I've mentioned before, and we have seen how Christ is that cornerstone. From his life and from his work, the entire Christian faith is built, and our unity is based on him. But now Paul explains that the apostles and the prophets are the foundation of the temple. Or to put it in another way, I think he's referencing the scriptures, the work and the writings of the prophets and the apostles is our foundation. And this is a very important thing to highlight because although I've talked about unity and reconciliation, we need to be very careful. There is a danger that in our quest for unity that the Bible can get put on a shelf. And by this, I mean that it can be put on a shelf in two distinct ways. First, it can be sacrificed for the sake of reconciliation. We must not sacrifice the truth of Scripture on the altar of reconciliation. Reconciliation, not based off of the truthfulness of the word, will never be real reconciliation. Second, there's a lot of material out there on the topic of reconciliation and unity. There are scores of sociology books that fill the shelves of bookstores that claim to have the way to unite. They are not what the Christian is to first turn to. I'm not saying that these books can't be helpful or can't be useful. In some ways, they can be, but they are not necessary to our unity. They're not necessary to reconciliation, and they are not the foundation for the Christian faith. 
We must always have our noses in the Bible. So Christ is our cornerstone. The scriptures are our foundation. And Paul tells us that we are being built together as a holy temple to the Lord, being made the dwelling place for God by the Spirit. I think this is the ultimate purpose of reconciliation. This is the ultimate purpose for our unity. Not only should we be one people and one family, but we are supposed to be the place where God dwells. We become the place of worship. We become the place of praise. And we are where the love of God should be on display. And each Christian then is like a stone. And that when we gather here on Sundays, we are being put together, one on top of the other, to become a temple for God. As I start to conclude, I had to think hard about what my call was for you today, because we've covered a lot of ground. You see, I've said a lot about unity and reconciliation within the church, but when I think about this church, I'm pleased to say that I think that we do well in this area. Though we are a small temple to the Lord, I feel as though that we understand well that we are Christians united to one another by the gospel and for the gospel. And we are not all uniform people. We all have our different thoughts and ideas. And there are some here that I can call my brother and love them dearly, even though we might not share my uh, libertarian political ideals. And there's some that I can call my sister and love them, even though we might disagree on topics like reconciliation and how it's accomplished. So then what's my call to you? As I look at the text, I look to see if there was an explicit command for us. And there is one. Paul starts this section of reconciliation, verse 11, with a command. He commands us to remember. He commands us to remember who we once were, far off, aliens and strangers. He calls us to remember the works of Christ. Church, reconciliation is not something that we need to accomplish. Christ has already did it. We need to walk it out. As we remember what he has done, we should be driven further and further to unity. And this further unity with each other it can be, this further unity with each other should drive us to reach out to those who have been feeling lonely, who have been feeling neglected. Because let's be honest, this time in COVID has driven a lot of us apart. Maybe there are those that are not feeling this unity that I've been preaching on, and this should change. As we remember our unity, let us reach out to one another as a family and spend time with one another and rejoice in our oneness with Christ. Lastly, as we remember what Christ has done, let us not forget that this is a message of reconciliation that can leave the church doors. We must be a church that brings others into the peace with Christ. We live in a country that seems divided on every front. We have the answer. We have reconciliation. We know that peace will only come through the Prince of Peace. And as I've walked through this text, I pray that you have seen the magnitude of what Christ has accomplished. Christ and the cross is the answer to any division, any situation in our church, in our city, and in our country. Let us give that answer. Please pray with me. 
You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. 